So we're getting to that time of year where a lot of us start going down to the beach. And there's one requirement of a good family beach vacation. You have to take a picture where everybody's got a white polo on and khaki shorts. It's like standard issue. They just give them to you down there, I guess. We all take that same picture down on the, the, in the sand with, our, you know, with the windswept hair. We take as many pictures as we can to make sure the kids are all smiling. We're all looking in the same direction, that kind of stuff. Well, see, if you're back home and you only see those pictures on Facebook, on Instagram, I don't know if you're this way, but my envy meter always starts to rise a little when I see those pictures as I envision the perfect family on the perfect vacation. But here's the truth, and deep down we all know this, no matter what stories we might tell ourselves, real life isn't that. Whether you're the one in the picture or whether you're the one simply envying who's in the picture, that doesn't reflect real life. In real life, family is full of mess and dysfunction and struggle. Real life isn't vacation. Real life is the house is messy, the kids might be unruly, our marriages might be stretched thin. See, that's real life most of the time, no matter how we might try to portray otherwise. Um, That's why the Bible tells us uh, true stories about family dysfunction. Y'all, if you're reading through our Bible reading plan, we're in the middle of Genesis right now. We just finished Genesis 30 this past week. The stuff that happens between Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, uh, Rachel, and Leah, it's the kind of stuff that makes your skin crawl when you read it. Like, how can these people be? It's like, it rivals any daytime soap opera. The stuff that we see that's in, in the Bible, this is a real book about real life. Family is dysfunctional. See, that's why whenever the Bible speaks on the issue of family, like what we have today, we always perk up, we always lean forward. Because deep down, again, no matter what I might like to portray to you, deep down I know what's true. I need help. As a husband, as a dad, our families, we need help. And so when the Bible speaks on it, we uh, incline ourselves, maybe, maybe as much or more than on any other subject, because we need God's grace here. Now when Paul speaks in Colossians 3 on the family, he doesn't give us just a whole lot. He really gives us, in this case, just four short verses. It's a short statement, but it's so powerful and it's so applicable and practical that when Paul speaks on this issue, he he simply uh, filters through maybe a lot of the other stuff and just gets right to the heart of the issues as to how we treat each other, how we love each other, how we respond to one another in a Christian home. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, we're going to look at each verse in turn, but before we get there, so important that we keep coming back to the foundation of Colossians. What Paul has been telling us all throughout this letter, and what really just Colossians 3, if you only took the third chapter of Colossians just by itself, what we find is if you want to have a good family, just like last week we talked about having a healthy church, if you want to have a good family, it doesn't start with tips and tricks for marriage and parenting. It starts with a fixation on Jesus. That's the whole nature of this letter, Paul has said in verse 1 of Colossians 3, if you have been raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is. The end of last week's message, we talked about what Paul says is the shared goal of the Christian faith, that whatever we do in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus for his glory, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So before we get into the practical things We have to fix our affections on Jesus. Only Jesus brings true change to the heart. 
Everything else perhaps is just window dressing. It is our will trying to fix our problems. You've all done that, so have I. We rarely get very far. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we have a fighting chance. Now, we'll see Paul kind of sprinkle that truth throughout here, where he's continually appealing to the Lord as the basis of our good behavior, of our family um, uh, growing in peace and and godliness as a family. It it starts and it ends with Jesus. So here's what Paul does. He takes it in turn. He goes really through the whole thing. He starts with wives, then he goes husbands, then children, then parents. Now, if you are presently, if you're not married, if you don't have children at the moment, I know the temptation might be to think this doesn't apply. And I would just encourage you, something else Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God, is breathed by God, and is profitable. And so let's, let's uh, if you don't find yourself in a direct and applicable way today, trust that the Lord still does his work through his word. Are y'all ready? All right, we've locked the doors. And we're starting with wives, okay? Don't blame me for that. That's how Paul begins. Verse 18, here we go. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Um, Whenever wives are addressed in the New Testament, it's usually along these grounds right here. Wives, be submissive, be subject to your husbands. Now, that may raise red flags immediately, especially in a culture like ours, because we might conjure up this image of some domineering man walking all over some helpless woman, and she's being told right here, you just submit, you keep your mouth shut, because you're less than, just, just get over yourself, right? And I, y'all, if, if, the, if the Bible's message is ever portrayed that way, don't buy it. Nothing could be further from the truth, okay? The truth is that in the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, there is a total revolution in the midst of the culture that the Bible was written in, a total revolution on the treatment and the esteem of women. Nobody had ever seen anything like this before. That in the culture of that day, and in some culture still today, women were basically viewed as second class, as property, as, as those who didn't have any rights. They couldn't vote. Their opinion wasn't held in any esteem. They just weren't viewed as worthy in the eyes of the culture and of the men who led that culture. But along came someone named Jesus. And Jesus gave dignity to women, the likes of which had never been seen. Uh, Some of his most famous, most devoted followers were women. It was not a boys' club only. Um, And the church that came after Jesus followed suit, that esteemed women higher, uh, further beyond the culture that had ever been done before. In fact, Paul says elsewhere, he says, In Christ, there is no male or female, meaning there is no distinction of value in Jesus, every one of us has the same dignity together. No matter what a culture may say, Jesus gets the final word, and in the eyes of the church, we are all esteemed the same. Nobody had ever heard anything like that before. And so when Paul says, wives be subject to your husbands, he's not making a statement of value. He's not saying that guy is bigger, stronger, smarter, more valuable than you, and so you need to know your place. No. He's talking about two equal heirs of salvation. And therefore, he's talking to you wives about a certain disposition. He's not talking about your dignity. He's talking about something that you choose to do. That word subject literally means to place yourself underneath, as if placing yourself in rank. It was a military term of a soldier who ranked under a governing officer, but y'all, it's a voluntary choice. It's something you choose to do. It's not something that's forced. 
And even more than that, it's a submission that comes from a deep devotion to God. Paul says you do it as is fitting in the Lord, meaning, ladies, you don't submit to that man because he's worthy of it. Oftentimes we men are not worthy of it. But you do it because you have a higher devotion, a higher calling to love, honor, and submit to God. So do we men, by the way. We'll get to that in a minute. But y'all, when God created marriage and family, he, he instituted roles and responsibilities. It's not a free-for-all. Further, the further we go as a culture, we want to make it a free-for-all, as if, some, as if it, the roles are interchangeable, they don't matter. But God did not create it that way. In his sovereign wisdom, God made husbands and fathers to be what he calls the head of the house, the head of the family. There's no more dignity in that role than any other. It's not an issue of dignity. God did it for the sake of order and for the establishment of his righteousness. That was his righteous choice. And so, wives, you you have to understand that your role, your God-given role, is a divine thing. It's full of dignity. It's full of grace. To honor your husband, to respect him, to defer to him, and allow him to lead, and not jerk the reins away from him, um, just because you think he's unworthy of leadership. No, God has established the order for the sake of his righteousness. It's fitting in him. You honor God through it. That's the message of the scripture. Now, again, we may not like that. Ladies, you may not like that, but the joy and the functionality, the order of the family depends on it. A a woman who simply will not be led uh, will have a husband who won't lead. We'll talk about that here in a second. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And so God established it for righteousness. Now, how do we do it? Y'all, we're going through a lot today. I don't have, we, could, we could talk through 100 points of application, okay? I'm just going to give you one, wives, on this. One thing, uh, honor your husband in your speech. If you want to be subject to him as is fitting to the Lord, honor him in the way you talk, okay? Never cut your husband down. Never hold his past failures over his head and refuse to let him get off the hook for something he's done before. You just won't let it go. You can continue to bring it up. Uh, I heard a pastor say one time, when my wife gets angry, she gets historical. She starts bringing up the past over and over, okay? We can't, you can't do that. Uh, you don't ever talk him down to your friends or to your mom on the phone, and you certainly don't talk him down to your children. Don't ever do anything that would lower your children's opinion of that man. You hold him in esteem. Is he always deserving of that? No. We know that we're not perfect, but you have to speak to him, treat him in a way that esteems him, that honors him, because a lot of times, guys, we'll rise to the occasion of leadership if we know that we've got a strong woman behind us, if there's wind in our sails. Remember, the Bible says that a woman who simply won't be led, it's like trying to restrain the wind. You can't push back the wind no matter how hard you try. So ladies, you affect the leadership of your husband a lot more than you think you do simply by being an honoring wife. One thing you can do, take something in the scripture that speaks of the character of godliness and find your husband in that thing and compliment him with scripture to say, when, honey, when, when the scripture says, be kind to one another, thank you for being a kind man. That, you have a godly heart in that way. Thank you for leading our family that way. That will, that will inflate a man in a way that almost nothing else could. And it won't make him arrogant. It will humble him because he knows the source is from the Lord. And you've helped him to see it that way. 
Honor your husband in how you speak to him. Uh, Now, Paul flips to the other side of the coin right here. You see this in verse 19. He's not speaking to wives only. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. This word for love is the same word that Paul used in the church last time we talked. It's the word agape. It's the deepest, strongest form of love. And it's it's the kind of love that is self-giving and self-sacrificing. I'm sure that every husband in this room, we'd raise our hand and say, yes, I love my wife. Of course I love my wife. But the bar is higher for us as Christian husbands that we're not just talking about an emotion, that we're talking about a love that reveals itself in sacrifice, in selflessness. This verse means Kyle has to set himself to the side for the sake of Jennifer. And that's not always easy. That's not always what we in our sin want to do, even if we love our wives. It means that we forgo ourselves, our wants, even our needs sometimes, in, in honor of that woman that God's given to us. We don't use our wives just to get what we want. We don't take her for granted. That's what it is to love selflessly, to love sacrificially. That's a higher bar, isn't it? You can't get away with emotions and mere words. It's got to be a life that follows suit. Uh, and then Paul says something interesting. He says, and don't be embittered against her. What, what he's saying right there is a husband cannot treat her bitterly. Don't be harsh. Don't be cold. Don't be unforgiving. Guys, don't be insulting and sarcastic. Don't be domineering. Don't be ugly in our behavior. And frankly, for a lot of us men, it's easy to go to that place. Even if we're just kind of joking around, we'll say cutting things. We'll do cutting things to our wives. We can't treat her in an embittered way. Do you know why a lot of women have trouble obeying verse 18, submitting to their husbands? A lot of women struggle not because they don't like obeying God. A lot of women struggle because historically men have had a really bad track record when it comes to how we treat women. There is a list a thousand miles long of husbands who have abused, lied, cheated, and run out. And all along that list are poor women sitting there wondering, what could my life have been if I just hadn't met him? Guys, there's a tenderness in marriage that is required of us, that she's different than us. We're meant to treat her as a weaker vessel. She's not weaker in dignity, but we treat her like we would approach a deer in the wilderness. Gently, lovingly, patiently, you don't treat her in a harsh way way. See, when God establishes the husband as the head of the wife, he likens it. This is Ephesians 5. God says, it's like Christ who is head of his church, who loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for her. That means if we're going to love our wives, it's not domineering leadership. It's service. It's servant leadership. We are to nurture and nourish our wives to esteem her as greater than yourself, to treat her as if she matters more than you. That's what husband actually means. The word husband is an agricultural term of farmers who husband the ground or husband animals. Uh, It's where you take something and you cultivate it to make it great. And that's our role as husbands. We don't love our wives in a 50-50 kind of way. I'll love you as long as you love me back. I'll give as long as I get in return. 
Our job, men, is to cultivate that woman. She ought to be better off because she met you. You're not holding her back from being what she could be. No, you're cultivating that in her. You're loving her well. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus Christ has never done you wrong. He makes you great because you're united with him. That's what it is to love a wife. Um, now, quick application, guys. I mean, how, how, do we, how do we do that? Again, I'm just going to give you one thing. Most women don't require the world of us, and aren't we glad? Listen, guys, most, most wives, I can say this with confidence, most wives would be over the moon if you would simply sit down with her on the couch, hold her hand, look in her eyes without distraction, and ask her, sweetie, how can I love you better? And guys, you'd be surprised at the answer. She, does, she probably doesn't need you to get a higher paying job or to buy her a bigger house or anything like that. She probably wants very simple things, just help and support and encouragement that you don't take her for granted. Most, most wives, aren't, they know that we're not perfect. They don't expect that from us. But they do need to know that they're loved and valued and esteemed, okay? So guys, I don't know specifically what your wife needs from you. But you probably don't either. I mean, that's, I mean, that's part, part of the problem. They're a mystery to us. So that's why you've got to sit down with her and humbly ask. And here's the deal, guys. I'll do this if you do this. When you ask, you listen. You don't defend yourself. You don't throw it back at her for all the things she doesn't do well. We have to listen, and then we have to be willing to change. I will change. I will flex in order to love her better. I will give of myself in order to love her better. That's the Christian standard. So you've got to ask. That's the application for us today. You, if you'll do it, I'll do it, okay? We'll, we'll ask our wives, and we'll be willing to change, right? You know, there's, there's a reason when Paul talks about the health of the home here in these four verses, there's an obvious reason he starts with marriage, because marriage is the tone setter. Marriage sets the tone for everything, uh, I, whether it's a good marriage or a bad marriage, it's going to set the tone for the health of the home. There's a pastor I really admire named Tommy Nelson. He said, listen, if you've got a good, healthy, godly marriage, you can almost afford to get everything else wrong. So give your six-year-old a chainsaw for Christmas, okay? They'll probably turn out okay in the end. If you've got a healthy marriage, you can almost fail in every other area of life. And your home, your kids will probably end up okay because they're witnessing the great reflection of Jesus in the church. That's what it is to be a husband and a wife. Now, Paul doesn't stop there, though. Marriage sets the tone, but he wants to address children in the home. And, I, you know, I, I can say this now with credibility as a dad. A lot of us, if you're a parent, you, before kids came along, we really thought we knew what exhaustion felt like. And we probably thought we were patient, unselfish people. And then kids came along and just gave us a new category entirely, didn't they? Uh, y'all, children are one of God's true and greatest gifts, but it's hard. It's hard being a parent. And the truth is, it's hard being a kid, too. Uh, I, it may be harder right now to be a kid than it's ever been. And I think we, maybe as parents, we tend to forget that. We lose sense of, of what it was like. But it's hard on both sides. And so just as Paul gave us two sides of a coin, husbands and wives, he does it again here. Two sides of a coin. He speaks to children, and he speaks to parents. And you see this in verse 20? He says, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, this is one of the Ten Commandments. 
Children, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. That's one of the big ten. Now, Paul specifies obedience as a primary way that we honor our parents. Uh, And let me just say this. I shouldn't have to say this, but when Paul says, children, obey your parents, he's making an assumption, moms and dads, that we are leading our children into what is right, and therefore they are right to obey us. Uh, We should never put our children in a position where they have to choose between obeying dad and obeying God. We should never lead our children into sin. So that's an assumption of Paul's here that we shouldn't take for granted again, but it ought to be an assumption in our home too. We're never going to lead our children in the wrong direction. We might make foolish decisions. We might put them into the wrong sport, okay? They'll forgive us, but we do not lead them away from the, the word and the righteousness of God. We, okay, to obey me is to obey God. That's the way it ought to be, right? But I, I want to say this to, to kids, okay? I know we got some kids in the room. I don't always preach to you kids specifically the way that I should, but I, just, I want to say something to y'all about what, what the Bible says. Why should you obey your parents? Why is it well-pleasing to the Lord? Right here. Um, kids, listen, God gave you parents so that you would know and follow Jesus. That is God's ultimate goal in giving you parents, is to get you to a place where you live your life for Jesus. God gave you a mom and a dad to help shape your heart in a way that God wants you to be. When God created you, he had in mind a certain kind of person, and he gave you parents to give you the life and the boundaries and the responsibilities and the love to get you to that place. Now, the problem for you kids is the same problem we have as grown-ups, is we don't like being told what to do. Nobody, I don't know anybody who loves being told what to do. We struggle to always feel like we want to obey. Not everybody wants to obey, okay? But what the Bible is saying is so important that when you obey your parents, you are obeying and honoring God, Paul says the connection is clear. When you obey your parents, you're obeying and honoring God. Now, the opposite is true. When you disobey your parents, you're dishonoring God. That's why it pleases him when you obey your mom and dad. Not just because you're doing what you're told. That's not all that obedience is. It's because you are learning right now, even as a young person, you are learning right now what it looks like to love and obey and honor God, to to spend the rest of your life in obedience to God. Now, kids, your parents are not perfect. They're not perfect. Your parents, just like me, we're sinners too. But God gave you your parents as a gift and a blessing. And so obedience, listen, if, if you give hugs and kisses and if you write cards to tell your parents you love them, we, y'all, we eat that stuff up, kids. We love that stuff. But the greatest expression of love is obedience. To obey your mom and dad, that proves your love for them in a way that nothing else can. Okay? Now, speaking of parents, we, listen, parents, we create that tone in the home. Okay? We can expect it, it's in the Bible, but we create an environment potentially where obedience is the desired uh, heart and outcome for our children. We can fan that flame, and that's what Paul closes with. When he says in verse 21, he speaks to fathers. Now, when Paul says fathers, 
he's probably giving us an idea of the, the role and responsibility, the leadership of the home fathers, but he's not speaking to dads only. When he says fathers, he's, he's very obviously talking to both parents here. But look at verse 21. How do we establish an environment that is healthy in our home? He says, fathers and mothers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, this is a great command right here because it gets to the heart and the preciousness of the child. What we might expect, what I might expect in, in a parenting verse in the New Testament would say something like this. Parents... Discipline your children and raise them up in the word of God. And of course, those commands are in the Bible. Those commands are right and good. But Paul kind of surprises us right here when he gets more to the heart than he gets to the externals. You see what he says? Don't exasperate your children. Now, what that means is don't stir your children up. That's the literal Greek term. Don't stir them up. Don't agitate them. Don't provoke them. Don't irritate your children and wear them down. Otherwise, Paul says, they will lose heart. They will fall into discouragement. Um, there, are, there are a lot of ways we can fail in this verse. I can think of two that are very common. I'm going to give you two ways that we can exasperate our children. Okay? And you'll, you'll know where I'm going with this. I'm, I'm just going to raise my hand to say I've been guilty of both of these, sometimes on the same day. Okay? So these are two very common ways that we can wear our children down. The first is by being an overbearing, demanding, harsh parent. There is a kind of parent who parents mainly through criticism and warnings and threats. That's our primary go-to as moms and dads. And y'all, we all, I mean, we've all, I'm sure we've probably all done this. Even walking into church this morning, you may have leaned down to say, if you don't act right in church, I will take every Barbie you own. And they will be gone, okay? You fill in the blank. Legos, whatever it may be. We've, you know, we, we know what it is to threaten right behavior, okay? Um, but here's the, here's the problem, or at least one problem. We always end up wildly inconsistent. I mean, so many of those warnings and threats, we don't follow through on those things. Because the truth is, what we're really after in that moment is just compliant behavior, what we're really after is just, to, if I can just get the kids to be good for 30 minutes, then I'll say or do whatever it takes. I'll, I'll promise whatever punishment is required if I can just get them to act good for, for this time period, while we're at lunch, while we're at church, or whatever it may be. And if they don't comply, then a lot of times we'll just raise the volume and start to throw out punishments. Um, do y'all see how this could crush a child, how this could lead a child into discouragement? Because when we parent that way, we're very rarely thinking about the long-term character of the heart of our child. What we're mainly aiming for is just immediate behavior, immediate compliance. And frankly, I can say this for myself, a lot of times under that way of parenting, it's really not even about the child so much as it about me. And I want 30 minutes of peace and quiet. I don't want to be annoyed. Um, I don't feel like I should have to parent after about 8 p.m., okay? And therefore, I start raising the volume. I get all upset. I start, to, I start to send out threats because I don't feel like I should be bothered. This should be easier than it is. Okay? But y'all, if, if that's the way we parent, not to say, listen, we all fail, but if we consistently parent that way, 
Here's what we're teaching our children. That you're that you are loved and accepted based on your good behavior and based on you conforming to what I want in any given moment. That there's an achievement, there's a line you have to cross, there's a, a, a bar you have to meet in order to be accepted, in order for dad to be happy. And y'all, a child will lose heart under that. A child will fall into discouragement. Some of us know this as adults because that's how we were raised. And we left the home at 18 still wondering if we were accepted, approved, and loved because it was never free. We can't parent that way. Uh, Now, the opposite problem, the second problem in terms of how we can exasperate our children is that we as parents can be so permissive that we are trying to make our children happy and be their friend. We cushion our children from failure We only and always tell them how great and how special they are. We buy them all the things that they want. We helicopter over them to make sure that life is always going well for them. You know what's interesting about that? Is is only in about the last hundred years of human history have we been this way, where we build our entire lives and families and society around our children. It was never that way throughout the rest of history and throughout most cultures even still today. It's not that way. Children are an important part of the family, but not the centerpiece, that their happiness is the primary goal of the parent's life. That's a relatively new thing. But do you see how this could crush a child? Because listen, again, if, if, if we cushion our children to make them happy because we want them to like us, then we crush them under the weight of that because, again, we're not actually aiming for the long-term character and heart of the child. We're still not aiming for their good in the long run. Listen, your daughter needs to fail. Your son needs to be bored without us always putting something in front of them to solve all of their problems. They need to know what it's like to deal with the realities of life. Our children have to learn to sacrifice. They need to know hardship. They need to know struggle. They have to endure pain. And most of all, our children need to know that they have a sin in their heart that has no remedy apart from humbly crying out for salvation and receiving the grace of Jesus. Our children are wonderful and special, of course, but they ain't that great. They're sinners in need of a Savior, just like the rest of us. We can't cushion them from life. They'll lose heart. They won't be prepared for the realities that they're sure to face. Y'all, the great reminder for us as parents, it actually comes from what Paul commands the children. If you remember what he said in verse 20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Moms and dads, our chief responsibility as parents is to lead our children to Jesus. That is our chief responsibility. Of course, we're, we're required and expected to provide for them, to protect them, to love them, to nurture, to encourage, all those wonderful things. But all of that exists for the ultimate goal of leading them to the Lord that we do every single thing within our power to develop our kids into adults who will live fruitful lives in loving service to God. That's the goal. If they get scholarships and sports trophies along the way, great. But we can't lower our sense of what it is to have a successful child to things like that when God has given us the bar. Raise them in a way that they see and experience the Lord in our home. Now, I know the truth about me, I'm sure it's true for you too, that we fail every day in this. And it's real easy for me to stand up and preach it. It's really easy for us to look at a verse that commands it. 
and just go to a really sour and ugly place, right? Because here's the truth, all right? We can raise, well, you don't have to raise your hand. As, as, as husbands, as wives, as moms and dads, here's the truth. We're a lot of times just making this up as we go. And we can be honest about that. It feels that way a lot of times. We're just making it up as we go. We're doing the best we can with what we have. Maybe we're just repeating what we saw and experienced in our own upbringing, for better or for worse. And as a result of that, we walk around, I think, a lot of times with a very real, under-the-surface sense of failure and shame and regret and guilt. Am I a good husband? Am I a good dad? I'm never really sure. It almost, it's like a day-by-day reality for me. How did today go? And how do I measure up as a result? Right? I know you know how that feels. We all do. But I want to encourage us as we close that we don't have to make it up as we go. That we have resources, as those who follow Jesus, we have resources probably beyond what we recognize. Y'all, in the Bible, we've talked about this some already. In the Bible, Jesus is pictured as a groom to a bride. In Ephesians 5, later on in Revelation, he's a husband to a bride, and the bride is his church. It's us. And that picture is meant to show us so vividly the kind of love that Jesus Christ has for you, that he has for us, that he loves us with a sacrificial love. He gave himself for the church, that Jesus is forever faithful to us, that he unites himself with us, that he always keeps his vows and his promises to us, that Jesus cultivates us and develops us and makes us great, guys and girls both. Jesus Christ has never once done you wrong. He will never grow tired of you and leave you or forsake you. He is the perfect husband to an unworthy bride. He has loved us that much. And in the Bible, God is pictured as our Heavenly Father. Another picture that's given to us, and that picture I think is clear as well, that God made us, He created us, He loves us, He provides for us, He does the the things that all good fathers ought to do. But listen, God shapes us and He disciplines us for our good. He doesn't let us run wild and free. He always reigns us in to make us righteous. He raises us up to maturity. The truth for everybody in this room, right where you sit, God right now is fathering you. We never outgrow our need for that. We never outgrow our need for the divine love of a perfect parent. Regardless of what kind of home we were raised up in, we have a perfect father who is parenting you even as we speak right now. He never grows tired of parenting you, of loving you. That's what he does. And so, y'all, if we want homes that are full of grace and truth and peace and righteousness and love, we don't have to make it up as we go. We've got the template, we've got the grounding, the foundation for it already given to us in Jesus. That's why Paul is so adamant all throughout Colossians that the answer to all of our problems is commitment to Jesus. Devotion to Jesus, fixation on Jesus, that's the answer to everything. We tend to want tips and tricks. I always want tips and tricks, how to make my kids behave, how to be a better husband, how to be a better dad. Those things are fine in a proper context. That's fine. But ultimately, I've got to change the identity of my heart, and I can't do it. Only Jesus Christ can do that. That's why the answer for all of our problems, Paul says, is this. I'm gonna, let me give you a couple of things. This is all from Colossians. This is what we've been looking at. Paul says, as you have received the Lord Jesus... So walk in him. 
Live in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Put on the new self who is being renewed in the image of Christ, the one who has created us. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do you see a thread? That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. Everything Paul has told us has the same foundation about it. That if we want change in our hearts personally, if we want to see our families change, if we want to see our marriages grow and become vibrant, if we want our children to know that we love them and to lead them in such a way that we don't wear them down and make them lose heart, then the answer is always the same, always and forever. The answer is Jesus. And y'all, I know that's very generic churchy talk, I know. But it was good enough for Paul to continue to solidify for us that we're not going to find the answers within ourselves. We find the answers as we fixate on Christ and then build the fundamental structures of our lives around him. Y'all, it's one thing, and I'm going to close with this. It's one thing for us to say, I love Jesus. In the same way, if I said, I love my wife, Jennifer, of course those things are true. But how does it manifest? How does it show itself in reality? Words are cheap. If I love Jesus, am I fixing my eyes and affections and devotion on him? Or am I simply keeping him around in hopes that he'll help me along in my own personal ambitions? You know, there's a difference. And we're all guilty of the latter. We've all done it. Paul says, fix your eyes on Jesus and let everything else take its proper place in orbit around him I think for a lot of us, and this is not going to sound very practical, but I want us to try it. I think for a lot of us, we don't consciously invite Jesus in on the family, on our marriage, on our parenting. We don't consciously seek to put the scripture to practice in how we operate in our home, because the easier thing, frankly, is to make it up as we go. And I trust this today, that that mentality is not going so well. Making it up as you go never turns out the way we hope it will. It's, it, ultimately, it's pride on my part to think I can. And so for us, listen, the difficulties of this stuff, marriage and family, it doesn't get solved overnight. But for us, it has to begin with a sincere prayer, an invitation, a call, a cry out to Jesus. You have got to be the center of these things so that his grace and his truth, his righteousness and love will begin to manifest in how we operate in our homes. I'll do it if you do it, right? Let's try it together and see what the Lord might do if we fix our eyes on him and how we operate as, as spouses and parents. Let's pray. <clears throat> um, Father, give us, uh, give us the honesty in our hearts at this moment. Um, we were raised in dysfunction, every last one of us. Even the very best of homes are full of sin and backwardness, Um, Our parents may have been heroes to us, perhaps, but they they raised us up in all manner of problems and and dysfunctions, and we have done the same. If we've been married, if we've had children, perhaps some of us in this room are grandchildren, or have grandchildren, um, we sin, we wound, we we, uh, exasperate, uh, we're harsh. We're unforgiving. We do all manner of things, Lord, that, that violate your righteousness. And Lord, the, the thing we need most of all this morning is forgiveness, is grace to cover our sin. 
And we thank you, Lord, that, that we find grace upon grace when we come to the throne of God. That you do not reject us in our failures, Lord, but you bring us near. You parent us. You bring us into conformity with Jesus Christ by purifying our hearts. Thank you for that gift, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that if we walk around today as, as moms and dads, as husbands and wives, if we walk around in guilt and shame and regret, that, Lord, you would wash us clean and remind us that we are accepted in Christ fully and finally by faith. And, Father, I pray that you would, from that springboard, from that reality, Lord, that you would launch us into a, a devotion to you that really does change how we live, how we think, how we speak, how we treat one another. That we as husbands and wives would live together in a way that we're not just trying to give and take all the time, but that we can give from a full heart because we've been given grace from a Savior. That we can love and submit well in the home because you have modeled for us the ultimate love and submission when you died on the cross. That we can love our children well and encourage them well and build them up well without coddling them. We can do all of that because, Lord, we have a perfect parent who loves, who provides, who cares, who disciplines. You do it all for us. And you give us the grace to, uh, to act it out in our homes. Father, please help us. We know that we need it. We know that, Lord, the, the, the beach picture doesn't tell the story. We know the reality of what happens when the doors are closed, and we need grace. Lord, govern us with grace. Govern us with your truth, and give us the courage to admit, if we're just making it up as we go, that we need a better way. We need your way. So, Lord, make, make your light to shine in our homes in such a way that one step at a time we can see feel, experience, and impart the grace and truth of Christ. Um, we need it. Our kids need it. Our world needs it. Families who will shine forth a light in a dark place so that the world might see what it is to be transformed in Christ and that you might get all the glory for it. Father, would you make it so among us here at Harvest Church? In Jesus' name, amen.